I'm going to do more reading than I normally do uh, because there's a lot of stuff that uh, I can't memorize. So um, the last couple days, uh, Wednesday and Thursday, I was at Bishop Montgomery High School and we had a conference. We had a five-panel conference on salvation. And, and I thought it was an interesting subject because you don't really hear about salvation in Buddhism so much. And so my task was to figure out what salvation in Buddhism was. And I realized there are 10,000 ways of looking at it. So I picked one of them. Um, the topic was wholeness. How world religions view the redemptive experience and salvation. Objective. The students will explore different views on salvation as a common theme found in world religions. Each faith has a similar yet unique perspective on the topic of how human persons struggle to find union with God, ultimate reality, and others liberation from suffering, and salvation from sin, social injustice, and the illusions of the world. Wholeness understood as holiness, integrity, the fullness of life, and moral living, is the result of the human struggle to discover the existential meaning and peace. Each speaker will have 15 minutes. Ain't that just the way it works, you know? So what I did is I, I wanted to get a, sort of a handle on it, and I went online and I found the Urban Dictionary. And I, <laughs> and I like the Urban Dictionary because they have a variety of examples. And so Christianity ended up like this. Salvation from sin through the sacrifice of Jesus. And I came up with Buddhism, salvation from suffering through the teachings of the Buddha. So for a Buddhist, our salvation lies in the end of our suffering. We are saved from suffering. Uh, Christianity, the search for peaceful relations, liberation from suffering, and salvation from sin. I came up with the search for inner peace, liberation from delusion, salvation from suffering. Now, according to one translation, the Buddha's final words were, Behold, O oh monks, this is my last advice to you. All component things in the world are impermanent. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation. Now, when you think about that, that's an amazing statement because what the historical Buddha was saying that there is no one or no thing that can save you. It's up to you. There's a personal responsibility and accountability that goes along with our salvation, at least in the Theravada early Buddhist tradition. When Buddhism became a religion in the first century, the Mahayana reform movement, there were bodhisattvas who could assist us in our liberation and our salvation. Um, 
And there were heaven realms. There were optional places to go after one died. Uh, in early Buddhism, they had heavens as well. But the real goal of Buddhism is and has always been to end suffering. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to take three aspects of all the stuff that I wrote and share it with the students. And so I wrote and read and reflected and ruminated, and I came up with morality, wholeness, salvation. Now, morality is found in all the world traditions. Pretty simple to understand, but, but for me, I'm thinking, well, what is the point? What is the point of morality? And, and how does Buddhism view it? So it took me back to the five precepts. So our morality starts with the practice of discipline. And why would that be important? What would it do for us to be well-disciplined? I think it would lead to relative peace in samsara. Now, there's the ultimate, and there's the relative, and there's oneness, and there's separation. And, and what I found in my practice of the five precepts, not to take life, not to take what is not given, no sexual misconduct, not to speak unskillfully, not to consume intoxicants, what I found there was a certain peace and comfort in practicing those. And in one instance would be you're on the freeway, and you're going 55 miles an hour, and all of a sudden, behind you, you see the CHP, and the lights are on, and they're coming up on you fast. And you glance down at your speedometer, and you realize you're only going 55, and so you don't have any fear or anxiety, and sure enough, the CHP goes right by you and gets the guy in front of you. So... Within the context of those five precepts, it allows us to be more comfortable in our relative lifestyle. It allows us to feel a certain sense of confidence in most situations when we're not doing anything that could require us to pay a ticket or go to jail. It also allows us to feel comfortable and create harmony in the community. It allows us to live next door to people who aren't Buddhist and allows them to feel comfortable when they find out that the first Buddhist practice is not meditation, but it's the practice of the precepts, which is the foundation of the meditation. So I think morality spoke clearly to the other panelists because in their traditions, they had morality also. Now the rub comes when you have four traditions based on God and one tradition that isn't. And it is difficult if you ever find yourself on an interreligious panel to listen to four other speakers talk about God because they're pretty much saying the same stuff over and over and over. And not coming to any real conclusions because a lot of it is faith-based, and when they talk about technique, um, it's, it's pretty much um, surrender. Surrender to the relationship with God. And so every time I get to speak, for me, it's like a breath of fresh air. It allows other words to fill the room and perhaps give 
an example to an agnostic, an atheist, or uh, someone who's a secular humanist, that there are other ways to live in the world besides being God-based. So, morality I've taken care of. Now we come to wholeness. Wholeness is tricky because as I listened to all the other panelists talk about wholeness, it was about relationship. The Hindu spoke of having the spark of God, the spark of Brahma or Brahma. And that's the soul. And it's a little piece of the same soul that makes up God. And in their evolution as a Hindu, ultimately they want to return their spark to the God, to the mothership. And then their journey will have been completed. And that would, of course, create wholeness. Um, In the Christian tradition, it's more about being separate from God, which causes the problem. And the journey is to create a relationship with God, to come together with your part and his, her, its part, and creating a whole. So we have this sort of separateness that comes together in Hinduism it's always been God. It's just you were delusional and not, and not seeing that. And so what did the Buddhists have to say about that? I said to myself. And, and, and I came up with this. And again, this is just my attempt at making sense out of wholeness and salvation. And there are 10,000 other ways of looking at that. And it's funny for me, that every time I post something on my Facebook page, there's 20 other people that post something completely different pertaining to what I posted. And I'm thinking, why don't you post that on your own page? I'm working on this. This is how I see it. But I don't say anything. I just defriend. No. <laughs> So what is wholeness in Buddhism? It is non-dualism. It is non-dualism. And it is the one-pointedness, the choiceless awareness that Suzuki Roshi might have said. It is the place where you no longer exist separately because of the ego. The ego has been anesthetized and you are now complete. Because our relative reality is based on dualism. It's me and them. And if they aren't there, I don't exist. So, another issue that comes up with this is, think about a coin. We have a large silver coin, and one side is heads, and one side is tails. In order to be the coin, do I have to give up both heads and tails, or could I give up one or the other and come to a non-dual awareness? The Buddha said, suffering is an internal experience, that there is no suffering in this world of ours. We have a plenty of people suffering, every one of them, but they're suffering because of the way they experience the world, not the world itself. Which 
leads me to believe we do not have to change the world to end our suffering. We have to change the way we experience the world to end our suffering. And if you want to help others end their suffering, there are things you can do, like feed them and give them water and give them shelter and give them medical care. And that reduces the pain. And as the pain is reduced, the suffering is reduced too. Pain is not optional. Suffering is. And people suffer the most when they don't want to have the pain. So I'm sitting there and I thought to myself, you know what it is? What we do in Buddhism is we go into samadhi, which is also a term that's used in Hinduism. Samadhi, samatha, is one-pointedness. It's a form of tranquility and bliss meditation. And the Buddha learned these techniques from the yogis of India 2,600 years ago and realized that almost got you there. So we have form jhana and formless jhana. And that's a duality, isn't it? This would be mind and body, perhaps. Form and formlessness. Samsara and nirvana. We start with this duality. And in our meditation practice our concentration practice, we let go of past and future. We let go of object and self. And we come to a place of balance. Even after the fourth jhana, we find this place of balance. Therefore, getting rid of one of the sides of the coin, which allows us to feel wholeness. Now, let me give you a quick rundown of the first four jhanas, and then I'm going to explain the formless jhanas by reading them. In the first jhana, we have five characteristics, according to some. I read online that there's only four characteristics, but I like five characteristics. So the five characteristics I like are applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. Imagine yourself sitting on the floor, bringing your attention to the tip of your nose, feeling the sensation of breath going out and in, out and in, applying the thought, sustaining the thought, holding it there in the sensation of breath. When this is successful, we have happiness of the mind, bliss of the body, and equanimity arising. The second jhana only has three characteristics. We have now let go of applied thought and our and sustained thought, And our mind simply rests on the object of meditation, which in this case is the breath. We have a greater sense of physical pleasure, a greater sense of mental happiness, and a greater sense of balance or equanimity. In order to get to the next jhana, the next tranquility state, we have to let something go. Buddhism is a path of renunciation. We don't gain anything. We get rid of the stuff that prevents us from realizing our perfection. So we let go of physical pleasure. And we don't really let go of physical pleasure. What we let go of is our attachment to physical pleasure, which means we're also at the same time letting go of our aversion to pain. And we slip into the next jhana, which is the third one. And now we only have two characteristics left. Happiness, consciousness, 
happiness in the consciousness, and equanimity. In order to get to the fourth jhana, we have to let something else go. We let go of happiness. Our attachment to happiness, our aversion to sadness, and we end up in equanimity, perfect balance, no high, no low, no left, no right, right in the middle. We are now at, we have deleted one side of the coin, and we have come to a place of wholeness. But there's still some work to be done if we want to simply be the coin. We let go of one side, now we have to let go of the other side. And this is where we come into the formless jhanas. And there are five of those. We have nine jhanas altogether. And I love the way this is written because I could understand it. The nine jhanas, number one, delightful sensations, number two, joy, number three, contentment, number four, utter peacefulness, number five, infinity of space, number six, infinity of consciousness, number seven, no-thingness, number eight, neither perception nor non-perception, number nine, cessation. Wow. Cessation. Okay. The fifth jhana, infinity of space. The fifth through eight jhanas are the absorptions without form. This is because they refer to states of consciousness where there is no perception of a form or a body. They correspond to heavenly realms, which also have no form or body. That is, being reborn into the formless realms, which are some of the heavenly planes, do not have a body, but do have a pleasant existence." Now, I know if you're a secular Buddhist, this stuff makes no sense and has no meaning to you. But there are these wonderful places after you die, if you practice well, you get to go to. So I wouldn't just poo-poo them. I would sort of say, hey, if I don't get nirvana in this lifetime, at least I can have a pleasant experience and existence without a body. And as my body ages, I see it being less and less useful and pleasant. You enter the fifth jhana. (laughs) You enter the fifth jhana by remaining in the utter peacefulness states and then shift your attention to the boundaries of your being. You focus your attention outward as if you were watching yourself from above. You may feel like you are floating above your body at first. You put your attention on your body so that it feels like you are filling the room. This is expanded further and further so that you fill the whole neighborhood, fill the whole city, fill the whole country, fill the whole continent, and then space itself. You will find yourself in this huge expanse of empty space. Now again, when you're doing this kind of meditation, you're really going to some altered states of consciousness that might put LSD to shame. So here you are, and you're sitting in your little zendo meditating, and you decide to expand your consciousness to fill the room. Okay? And... When I give a presentation, that's exactly what I do. I expand my consciousness to fill the room. That's why when I speak to people one-on-one, they're a little scared because I'm filling the room and they're right in front of me and it's like it's on 10. 
So I try to downsize myself if I'm one and one. But to upsize yourself, to fill the room, then to fill Los Angeles. Can your consciousness enter into Los Angeles and take over? And think about the way you think about Los Angeles in little bits and pieces and places you know and places you don't know. But how about if you just sort of became Los Angeles and those four million people? And then you became California and went for a glass of water. And then you became America, whatever that means to you. And then you became the planet. And then you became everything, the cosmos, consciousness expanding. So that's sort of what they're talking about. And if you get big enough, there's no place for anything else to exist. And there's a sense of oneness or non-duality. The sixth jhana, infinity of consciousness, you enter the sixth jhana by realizing that the infinite space you occupy includes your consciousness. So you shift your attention to infinite consciousness instead of infinite space. And you may feel at one with all nature and existence. But do not be fooled, this is not full enlightenment. Concentration is further increased and there is still one-pointedness of mind. Now, this was a very important sentence to me because what they said was exactly the way I understand it. This is not enlightenment. Enlightenment allows us to feel whole. Nirvana allows us to feel no suffering. So this samatha meditation is about how to become enlightened. Enlightenment does not end your suffering, unfortunately. But it does, as it said, reconnect you in a very personal way with the entire universe. It's like coming home. We've been separate this whole time because of ego and self. We've become somebody. And in becoming somebody, we had to be separate from everything else. And now we have this moment of meditation where that somebody-ness falls away. And now we are interconnected and interdependent. And I think that is exactly where compassion in Buddhism comes from. The compassion in Buddhism is found with the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. Number seven, no thingness, not self. The seventh jhana is entered by realizing that that content of the infinite consciousness is basically empty of any permanent nature. We also realize there is no thingness. There is nothing in the universe that has any permanent essence. We realize that everything is in a constant state of flux. Wow. Right now, we have come to the place where no soul, self, Ego exists, and all we see is change and flux and impermanence. No place to stand, no one to be. Talk about complete freedom at that moment. That is being free. But it probably would freak you out if the self comes and says, what the hell is going on now? Eighth jhana. The 8th and ninth jhanas are difficult to discuss because they are so hard to describe in much the same way that nirvana is hard to describe. 
I had one of the students at the school ask me, well, can you explain nirvana? Well, you know, if you read Buddhism, you realize the Buddha didn't even explain nirvana. And here's this guy, born in Iowa, being asked to explain nirvana. So I said, yes, I can explain nirvana. I said, what do you think nirvana is? And she gave me a statement. And I said, well, that's not it. Is any other ideas? And she gave me another statement. I said, well, no, that's not it either. Any other ideas? And she went on for a few minutes giving me all her ideas about what she thought nirvana was. And I said, no matter how many ways you can explain nirvana, it is not it. And the one way you didn't explain nirvana, that is it. And she sat down. There is so little to discuss with the 8th and ninth jhanas since the perception levels have become so fine and subtle. You enter the 8th jhana by letting go of the sense of no-thingness and enter a very natural, calm place. In the 8th jhana, there is very little recognition of what is happening. But you are also not totally unaware of what is happening. There is such a peaceful state and you have gone beyond the duality of perception or non-perception, that it is easy to be fooled that you have experienced full enlightenment, but there is still more to do. Yeah, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Remember that? Heart Sutra. The most profound sutra, I think, written by a Buddhist school of thought. It is a sutra on non-duality. It is a sutra on one-pointedness. It is a sutra about the ultimate reality that is available to all of us through our meditation practice. And I just happen to have... This is our translation of the Heart Sutra, depending on what temple or school of Buddhism you go to, you will find their translation. There are 10,000 translations. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when practicing deeply, the perfect wisdom clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty and pass beyond all suffering. Shariputra, form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Form then is emptiness. Emptiness then is form. Sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness are also like this. Shariputra, all dharmas are marked with emptiness, not born and not dying, not stained and not pure, not gaining and not losing. Therefore, with an emptiness there is no form, no sensation, perception, volition, or consciousness, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind, no form, sound, smell, taste, touch, or dharmas, no realm of sight, till we come to no realm of consciousness, no ignorance and no ending of ignorance, till we come to no old age and death, and no ending of old age and death. No suffering, origination, extinction, or path, no wisdom, and no attainment with nothing to attain. Because the Bodhisattva follows the perfect wisdom, the mind has no hindrance, and having no hindrance, there is no fear. And far from all fantasy, there is dwelling 
in nirvana. Because all Buddhas of the three times follow the perfect wisdom, they gain complete and perfect enlightenment. Therefore, know that the perfect wisdom is the great holy mantra, the great bright mantra, the wisdom mantra, the unequaled mantra, which can destroy all suffering, truly real and not false. So he gave the prajna paramita mantra, which goes, gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha. That particular sutra is fairly easy to read once you get some of those names down and really difficult to understand. You gotta sort of memorize it and you gotta reflect on it and then you gotta meditate for about 10 years and it starts to make a little bit of sense. It is a sutra of negation. Neti neti. Just like I explained nirvana, if you think it's that or you think it's this, it's not that, it's not this. And you come to a place of emptiness, which is the exact opposite of what a Christian would come to, because they would come to a place of fullness. We come to a place of emptiness. They get everything, we get nothing. (laughs) But it's the same coin, it's just one side or the other. It's the same coin. They have heads, we have tails. It works fine. So we come through the back door, they come through the front door. They see it, we don't. But we both come to a place of wholeness. Wholeness. Because of the fullness or because of the emptiness. Now, the ninth and final, cessation. When you reach the limits of perception, you realize that lesser mental activity is better for your calm and peaceful state. You enter into cessation of consciousness, where there is only a very subtle form of perception. The meditator may appear to be unconscious. There have been reports of meditators having heartbeats as low as 20 to 40 beats per minute at this jhanic level. The nearest way to describe this state of something is like being in a very deep sleep. The eighth and ninth jhanas are not full enlightenment, but very close stepping stones to full awakening. Only those who are very close to being fully enlightened can enter the eighth and especially the ninth jhana. Okay, having said all that, we have now come through the nine jhanas and we are now enlightened. We are at a non-dual level of awareness. And the problem with it is it's temporary and generally only when we're in deep levels of meditation can we can be considered enlightened. And when we're on the 405 freeway flipping everybody off, that enlightenment doesn't seem to appear. So the Buddha had an issue with this. He said, I want permanent. I don't want temporary. I don't want to have to be in those deep states of consciousness. I can't do my laundry. I can't find a meal. I don't know where to go or why. So I need to be able to live in the world. I need to be able to make samsara nirvana and nirvana samsara. And that's when he rediscovered insight meditation, vipassana. Vipassana is how you end your suffering. Vipassana leads to your salvation. Samatha leads to your enlightenment. Samatha leads to your wholeness. So now we go to the four stages of nirvana. 
the four stages of nirvana, the four stages of salvation. At the first stage is the stream enterer. That is one who has entered the stream that eventually leads to the ocean of nirvana. When he is at this stage, his insight is powerful enough to remove the first three fetters, ten fetters, ten hindrances, ten things keeping from our realization of nirvana. So we're already there. There's no place to go. We don't have to go to India or Pacoima. We're there. We have these roadblocks. You take away the roadblocks, you have a realization. You wake up to the fact that you have always been there. It would be like me saying right now, I want to go to Los Angeles. And Rick would say, but you're already in Los Angeles. It doesn't feel like Los Angeles to me, I might say. And then I have an epiphany and I realize I'm in Los Angeles and always have been. And that's how nirvana sort of works. So what are the first three things that we get rid of? The first three roadblocks to our nirvana. Number one, belief in existence of a permanent self. That you now look at yourself as not a rigid, fixed, unchanging, unconditional entity. That you are always conditional. And you are always subject to change. And you are a process, not an event. In L.A., it's hard to be a process and not an event. (laughs) But that's the first thing that happens. And if you had gone through those nine stages of jhana, it makes perfect sense that you would come to this place and say, yeah, I've never been who I thought I was. And I never will be. I'm always in a constant state of becoming something else. Number two, doubt in the ability of the three gems, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, to lead towards the goals. Skeptical doubt is now not part of your consciousness. You know for sure. You have confidence. You have tested the Dharma. And every time you have tested the Dharma, it has tested to be true to you. That no teacher is going to tell you it's true. No book is going to tell you it's true. Through your own experience, you realize for you it is true. And there is no skeptical doubt when it comes to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The mistaken belief that moral rules and ascetic rites and rituals alone are sufficient to lead a person to nirvana. If you go to Buddhist temples a lot, you'll realize a lot of them have many rites and rituals that take minutes, if not hours, to perform. And because not everybody wants to be a Buddhist scholar because they'd rather have a family and a career and a car, they're going to go and they're going to offer incense and they're going to be chanting and they're going to somewhat understand what they're chanting, perhaps. And that'll be good enough. And the major Buddhist holidays, they'll end up at the temple and they'll give dana to the monks and thank the monks for being there and being great teachers. And and then they'll die. And they won't have achieved nirvana, but they probably will have achieved heaven which may be good enough. But if you really want to achieve nirvana, if you really want to end your suffering, find your salvation, rites and rituals will never do that for you. Never. It can't take you there. That belief falls away. Okay, first stage. Now you're in the stream. At the most, you have seven more lifetimes to go. 
before you achieve nirvana, at the most. Um, on attaining the first stage, that would be arhant, will no longer be reborn in any of the lower realms of existence. So once you become a stream enterer, even if you're reborn in heaven, you'll have confidence you'll never be reborn in hell again. Only good rebirths. As he makes further progress and perfects his insight skill more, he reaches the second stage, which is once returner. After this life, he will be reborn only once more as a human being. In that rebirth, he would attain nirvana. At this stage, he has also succeeded in weakening the fourth and fifth fetters, attachment to sensual desire and ill will or hatred. He has reduced them. He hasn't cut them out yet. They're still there. And you keep hearing these stories about these Zen masters and other teachers, you know, uh, attracted and groping their students and, and you know, and, and you think, but the guy's enlightened. But see, enlightenment doesn't eradicate sensual desire. See, it, it's, it's nirvana that does that. And even at the second stage of nirvana, you still could be a groper. You've got to be careful. And that's why we have the five precepts. We carry those five precepts all the way to nirvana. Once you're in nirvana, you cannot break the five precepts. You don't even have to think about them. It's out of, but now we've lessened them. We're less likely to be unskillful. Okay. Third stage is that of the non-returner. There are no more rebirths. At this stage, he completely removes the fourth and fifth fetters of attachment. Finally, they're gone. The non-returner will no longer be reborn in the human realm. He will be reborn in one of the pure abodes in the heavens where he will attain nirvana. At this stage, the first five fetters have been totally removed. Wow. That's a lot of work. This is lifetimes. This isn't like a weekend. This is like lifetimes. Finally, at the fourth stage, he makes the final advance towards becoming an arhant and a foe-destroyer who attains nirvana because he has broken all the ten fetters. And the last five are desire for existence in the world of form. So desire to be reborn in form. Desire for existence in the formless worlds. To be reborn in heaven and not have a form. Conceit finally is eradicated. At the last stage, you know? So you ask the guy, he's at the third level, how he's, how's he doing, you know? He says, I'm great, thanks. At the fourth level, there wouldn't be any I or great connected to him. He has lost his restlessness and... He is no longer ignorant of the true nature of reality. He is no longer deluded. He sees clearly exactly how it is. It is impermanent. It is filled with suffering. And there is no sense of self that exists apart from conditions. He has become an arhant. He never has to suffer again. He has been saved. She has been saved. Now, you might say, after listening to all of this, I think I'm going to be a Christian. Because <laughs> that grace sounds pretty good, you know. <laughs> so it, it is a very difficult path we are following. It takes a, a lot of focus, a lot of persistence, 
and a lot of confidence that it will eventually become you. The path will become you. You will become the path. You will achieve the goal. You will realize the goal. You will be an arhat, someone who has achieved nirvana, who will never suffer ever again, who has ended his or her karma forever, and will never be reborn in a form realm or a formless realm, but continue to exist in nirvana, which is a realm unto itself, with no birth, no old age, no sickness, no death. I wanted to say that in 15 minutes at the high school. But you know what? I couldn't figure out how to do it, so I just gave him the high points and then played my harmonica and got a standing ovation. So what they probably took away from my presentation was Buddhists play harmonica pretty good. (laughs) Does anybody have any questions or comments about what I've said? Was it clear? Did it make any sense at all? Yes. So do you have to have a cessation experience to have this metric? No, 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 no. See, this is different. The, the cessation was the enlightenment experience, not the nirvana experience. There's so many people that equate those two things. They do. Well, cessation of desire, but this is a little different. This is since this is. Yes. A, And that would be nirvana to some people? To some people, it's a, it's a stream Okay. For me, um, when I read the suttas and hear the Buddha speak, he sounds very clear. He sounds like he's present and accounted for. It sounds like he's working on all cylinders. So this practice of, of, of coming to a place of anesthetizing ego and duality... Um, is 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 found, I think, in the practice of Buddhism that leads to the eventual result or performance. So we have the practice, we have the performance. And um, cessation would be like, I suppose, a vacation. A vacation from uh, discursive thought, you know, coming to a place of present moment experience, relaxed, fully present, unencumbered by self or other. And and it gets tricky because we're using words and the words are only symbols and fingers pointing. And and so everybody hears it differently, everybody reads it differently. I am so amazed when I post something on Facebook how people read it and understand it. And I just want to go back and say, no, that's not what I meant or had wanted to say. But I realize that, that everybody's going to... Hear what I said from where they are. And, and some will be here, and some will be here, and some will be the meditators, and some will be the insight, and some will be the samatha. And so, yes, cessation, you'll probably find in a lot of different places. But hopefully it was clear here, because we didn't have cessation in the vipassana arhat model. We only had it in the samatha model, the bodhisattva model, the enlightenment. Yes. I am saying that you need basic rudimentary concentration in order to go to the four stages. 
simply using vipassana. And that's why when you go on a vipassana retreat, generally speaking, the first day or the first few hours are concentration exercises to get you ready for vipassana. But the Buddha did both. He did both samatha all the way to the end, and he did vipassana all the way to the end. So what I find is people who only do vipassana are a little bit dry, a little bit practical. Um, and, and the people that only do samatha meditation are blissful and happy and joyful. And, and so can you imagine having both those together, the clarity and the kindness? And I think that's what both these techniques do. So what I think a Buddhist should do, I think they should do them both. And, and because that's what the Buddha did, according to the texts. So I started with Vipassana. I got a little dry. I got a little cynical. I went into Samatha meditation. I became happier. I was able to have this sort of Samadhi buffer around me and be able to absorb the information and not have to jump to a conclusion, but take my time. And I found that using both of those worked better for me. That all makes sense to me. I still have just just a little bit of uncertainty about this cessation thing, which people talk about, like Sasaki Roshi or Shins and Yang goes in and out of awareness. Like you can see that disappear. Yeah, that's what they say. I, I don't know if we all have to experience that to achieve Nirvana. Um, it's possible, though. And uh, are there any benefits from? Uh, Cessation, or uh, and I would say probably a, a cleansing of the consciousness, a purification. But it comes back; it may come back a little more transparent than it was be, before you went into cessation. But the personality never seems to go away. You know, the, the, no matter how deep you get or or how enlightened you become, you always seem to have this these personality characteristics that just sort of hang in there. Um, uh, which I find fascinating, because I would have thought it would have changed everything. But instead, it seems just to s- simply change the way you experience things. And so that's what I would say. Thanks. When you're talking about consciousness of awareness, and you're like expanding your awareness... Expanding it? Yeah. To, yeah. Is that... I've been reading a lot of here with the third parallel universes. Isn't that kind of similar, do you know? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know about the parallel universes. Uh, I've, I've seen books on those. They look fascinating. But I, I don't know. Um, if you want to take a scientific approach, that might be one way to approach it. Um, um, if A mystic approach would be different. Uh, uh, um, but I think this I- expansion of consciousness... Uh, is real, and I and I and I think it's possible to do that. Um, um, it, it's hard to say how that would benefit you, other than making you realize it's you are more than you ever thought you were. That the the small individual self is so limited, and the possibility of expanding into everything is available to us. But but a lot of us can't see the usefulness of that because it won't lead to a better relationship or more money. It just leads to a, a different way of looking at the world, you know. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, during your talk, you were talking about rebirths and, and um, 
What is the difference between rebirth and reincarnation as far as within the context we're talking about? Yeah, because, that's really good. Because I, I, I've heard you speak before on, on this topic, and, and my, my curiosity is, is there a difference between the two? Yeah. So the difference between rebirth and reincarnation is rebirth does not require a soul. Reincarnation does. And the Buddha had a lot of issues with having a soul, and uh, which is always fun to talk about when you're around a bunch of Christians. You may not have a soul. Well, they don't want to hear that, that's for sure. Do we have a soul? We might have a soul, but that's not who we really are. And the issue the Buddha had was if we do have a soul and it is eternal, we may not take every lifetime seriously. It may be real jerk in a couple of those lifetimes, thinking we have many more lifetimes to make up for our indiscretion. If we believe in nihilism and that this is all there is, we may not take this life very seriously either because we're just going to feed the trees no matter how good or bad we are. So what migrates from lifetime to lifetime in Buddhism according to the Theravada is the karmic energy. It's called Gandhava. It migrates from one lifetime to the next. So we have this karmic energy that travels with us, and we have all these past lives, and we've been skillful and unskillful, and it, it can start in a variety of ways each lifetime. And we can make each lifetime better or worse, depending on how skillful or unskillful we are. And, and it's, scientifically speaking, it'd be like just energy that can't be destroyed or created, but simply changed. So we can modify this energy, and we give it a moral value of, of good or bad. And the more good energy you have, theoretically, the better results you'll have, and vice versa. But we don't know how skillful we've been in a million or so lifetimes before, so we may be experiencing in this lifetime karma from five lifetimes ago. And no matter how good we are, how skillful we are, our life doesn't get very good. It never gets much better. But because of all that work and purification in this lifetime, our next lifetime will be better. So we can sort of look at it that way. It gives us a, a little bit of hope, but Buddhism really doesn't have much hope at all. So um, reincarnation requires a soul. Rebirth requires karmic energy. So you're saying that, that, that there, there are other lifetimes energy, the karmic energy goes from you with from one place to another? One lifetime to the next. One it follows you. It follows you. There's a great story, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill it, but I'll try to share it with you anyway. There's this woman, she had three boyfriends. And one of the girls at the high school said, three boyfriends at the same time? And the woman said, yes, she had three boyfriends at the same time. And one boyfriend, they had so much fun, they got, they dressed up, they went out, they had food, it was just the best relationship. The second boyfriend was, they were always bickering and arguing with each other, and nobody could ever agree, and yet there was something about this boyfriend that just attracted her to him. And the third boyfriend was just sort of there in the background, always available to her, uh, um, but never making a big deal about the relationship or, or, or her or him. She was about to die, and she wanted to take her boyfriends with her to the grave. And so she said to the first boyfriend, I'm going to die, and I'd like you to come with me, journey along. He, oh, no, I can't do that. 
I, I'm having too much fun. I've got too many other things I want to do. No, no, you're going to have to go alone. And then she talked to the second boyfriend. And the boyfriend said, no, there's no way I'm going to die with you. I'll die when it's my time. But, but you have to do it alone. And then she went to the third boyfriend. And the third boyfriend said, yes, I'll go with you to the grave. I'll die with you. Now, the first boyfriend was her ego. The second boyfriend was her family. The third boyfriend was her karma. It follows us. Okay, I like that story. Yes? You talked a little bit earlier about the difference between Vipassana and was it Sumitra? Vipassana and Samatha. Samatha and uh, the different qualities that they cultivate. Yes. And I'm sure I can Google it, but I'd like to hear your take on this. Okay, according to me... Samatha is, is designed to bring us to a, a place of unified consciousness, non-duality. It is, it is designed to allow us to transcend and, and find our heart in the process. Um, it also leads to enlightenment rather than nirvana. And it's something that's practiced more so in the Mahayana tradition than in the Vipassana or Theravada tradition. So in the Mahayana tradition, the idea is not to achieve nirvana. The idea is to achieve enlightenment and be a bodhisattva and be of service to all sentient beings until everyone is saved. Then, then you become a Buddha. It's, they, they're going to bypass being an arhat. They're going to be a Buddha. Cool. Well, if you read the Theravada tradition, you realize there's only one Buddha at a time everywhere. And we already have our Buddha, Siddhartha, who became the Buddha, and the next Buddha will be Maitreya Buddha. So if you want to be a Buddha on earth, you have a long way. But you can be a Buddha, according to the Mahayana tradition, in even on a dust moat, floating through the air. It's a whole, it's a whole planetary system. You could be a Buddha on that. Now, in the Theravada tradition, they don't want to be a Buddha, because they realize there's only one Buddha at a time. And anyone who follows the teachings of a teacher cannot be a Buddha. The thing that makes the Buddha unique is this. He rediscovered the path to nirvana. It had been lost to the world. He didn't have a teacher. After he achieved nirvana, he was able to teach how he did it. He can't do it for us, but he could tell us what he did to achieve his perfection, to achieve his salvation. So we have the arhant, we have the non-returner, the once-returner, and the stream-enterer. So we have a whole series of looking at Vipassana, early Buddhism, and the goal. And then we have this whole series of Mahayana, Samatha, and the goal. And they're distinct. And, and you know, it took me years to come to that conclusion. Again, this is according to me. And what I kept seeing was people used to talk about it as enlightenment was nirvana and nirvana is enlightenment. And, and I kept seeing the distinctions. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, no, they're not the same. There's something different about both of these things. And then I figured out the paths were different and the goals were different. And I'm going, okay, now... In, so within the context of Buddhism... We have two major traditions. We have the tradition of the Arhant and the tradition of the Bodhisattva. And that's my take on it. Thanks.
Can you refresh my memory then when you're sitting on the mat? What, how do you do samadhi versus how you do vipassana? Yeah, the interesting thing is they can start exactly the same way. And then you come to the fork in the road, and that's when you make the choice. So, so mindfulness would, according to me, is designed to allow you to see the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. And it's, and it's through reflection, and it's through mindfulness of the body, sensations, mind, and mental objects. And then applying that to the world around you. Samatha meditation, on the other hand, is, is designed to take you deeper and deeper and deeper into one-pointedness where you reach a point of cessation, where the, where the personality, the sense of ego, the sense of separateness falls away. And you merge with the cosmos in those moments and have great bliss and happiness and pleasure and then realize those are preventing you from going even further. And so ultimately, when you come to the end of your samatha meditation, you're simply, well, simply, you're in a profound state of balance. And, and thus, people sometimes get confused when they say, well, I thought the, the whole deal with Buddhism was to be happy. I thought that was the goal of Buddhism. And really, the goal of Buddhism is to find peace. Now, I'm fond of saying, if you're under 30, the goal is to be happy. If you're over 30, the goal is not to suffer. <laughs> so, but this idea of peace and balance and equanimity and non-attachment, wow, that is so hard to understand as a goal, because it sounds like life has flatlined and it's not giving you that roller coaster ride that you've enjoyed your whole life. But you know what? I, to be honest with you, the older I get, the less I like the roller coaster. I, I just like the sort of, you know, man, little waves, maybe wavelets, but I don't like the big stuff anymore. It's not fun anymore, you know? And so, so, I can see what he means now when, when the Buddha talks about this, this, this perfect peace, this profound sense of peace and balance as being a goal and being something to aspire to. Helpful? Sort of? Okay, yeah, thanks. Thanks. Okay, well, it looks like everybody is all set. Why don't we do a quick loving-kindness meditation and we'll call it a day. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear struck, fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief. May the sick find health relief. <laughs>